and we're live. And just like that, literally just like that, it's begun. It's here. We're here. You're here. I'm here. My name is Brandon. This is the state of the universe. Okay. And on today's episode, on this week's episode, we got the great Dr. Josh Willis. He's an oceanographer at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. He's the lead scientist for a fa very famous NASA mission called OMG. OMG. Such a clever acronym. Considering it has to deal with climate change, we should be saying OMG. It stands for Oceans Melting Greenland. On this show all the time, I talk about climate change, greenhouse gases, I talk about the temperature of the planet, I talk about all of it. And I've even had some people on the show to talk about carbon capture, to talk about aspects of climate change, but I've never had anyone on the show who literally works on the front lines of climate change, of where the very early impacts are occurring. Sure, there's impacts all over the world. You can find them everywhere. But I'm talking about the direct impact of the glaciers in Greenland melting to nothing. And there's no one I've had on the show who's actually been there, works there, and sees it until now. We got the great Dr. Josh Willis who spends weeks there every single year mapping the glaciers, mapping the sorts of things that cause them to melt with a specific emphasis on analyzing in what role do the oceans play. We always talk about the temperature of the atmosphere. We talk about the fact that the atmosphere is heating up. But what's talked about a lot less is the fact that the oceans are heating up too. And that actually has a huge impact on the melting of the glaciers. And so we got the great Dr. Josh Wills to talk to us about it. It was an awesome conversation. We talk about that. We talk about a ton more. He's an awesome guy for more than just that. More than just that. Listen, you might think scientists are boring. You might think scientists suck. You might think scientists are losers. In some cases, you're right. I'm thinking 87% of the time, you hit the nail on the head. Losers, sure. Weirdos, yep. Check that box, okay? Listen, I work with them. I'm not allowed to say it. It's a fact. Ask them. They'll tell you. They'll tell you. Josh is also an awesome guy because he says, no, 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 scientists were cool people. Check this out. And he made a song. So you might know him. You might say, I don't know who Josh Willis is, but you might know who Climate Elvis is. And Josh is Climate Elvis, not just because he looks like Elvis. I mean, you look at him, he's got the sideburns, he's got the hair, he's looking fly, he even wears a jacket sometimes, a nice bejeweled jacket. It's what he does. And, well, because of this. That's climate. Oh, that's the climate you got. You think about your weather and your hammer together and you're doing the climate rock. Well, the climate has been changing because of greenhouse gases we spew. They trap the heat and warm the earth and melt the glaciers too. The globe, it has been warming, but the weather still blows through. So just because it's cold sometimes doesn't mean it isn't true. Global warming, oh, that's global warming. Dude, what a jam that is. That is an absolute banger of a song. Do you understand me? I would jam that in the car, I would blast that in the car, but I can't blast that in the car because in Rochester, New York, if you blasted that in the car and you came up to a stoplight and some hooligans heard you blasting that in the car, they're going to rob you, they're going to take your money, and they're going to steal your car because they're going to make the assumption that if you're listening to a song called Climate Rock loudly out of your speakers at the stoplight, then you're an easy target to steal everything from. So I can't do it. So I have to listen in secrecy. But that doesn't change the fact that it's an amazing song. 
take a bunch of weather and you average it together and you do when you climb it rock. Seriously, that, that, that music, I should say, you know, it seems simple. It was made with the help of dozens of people. So go check out the actual music video that I linked to down below and actually support the music video. Don't just listen to me sing it. Take a bunch of weather and you average it together and you go and to support all those people. It's awesome. Go listen. There's a link below. I hope you enjoy the episode. Everything Josh says in this episode is his sole opinion and doesn't represent NASA, doesn't represent JPL. Unfortunately, I have to say that because we live in a weird world. Not even that he says anything weird. Bad. It's just the world we live in. We always got to say that. Even though it's obvious. Isn't it obvious? Isn't it obvious that the something that one person says is not the opinion of their entire organization and everyone who ever affiliated with them? Weird. I don't know. It's one of the things I have to say. I have to say it by myself. I have to say it by myself. And it just boggles my mind every time I say it. Anyway, rate and view the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars. If you have an iPhone and you didn't do that, then you suck. It's a fact. Follow me on Twitter, follow me on Instagram, follow the show on Twitter, follow the show on Instagram, subscribe on YouTube, YouTube's blowing up lately. The most recent podcast was the most engaged podcast ever on the YouTube. It wasn't the most viewed, but it was the most engaged. We're talking about likes, we're talking about um, shares, we're talking about views, and we're talking about comments. All of it. The most, okay? So, go do that. Join the mailing list, thestateoftheuniverse.com. Go there, join the mailing list, all one word. Don't put any spaces. If you put any spaces, you did it wrong. If you put any spaces, you didn't do it right. And that's your fault. Because I said thestateoftheuniverse.com. And if you put any spaces in that, after I told you not to, it's your own damn fault. So thanks for listening. I don't know. I ramble a lot. I try not to do that. but <laughs> That's hey, part man. of the podcast yeah. world. You get to, right? <laughs> I have to. I have no choice. It's my, yeah. it's, it's in my DNA. I can't help it. But anyway, <laughs> Josh, great. it's great to have you here. Yeah, um, great was, to be here. I, I, I was watching, you were on the Today Show last week or the week before. Yeah, That's yeah. Cool. So, uh, yeah, um, I, uh, I have this mission. I'm the P- principal investigator, PI, for mm-hmm. uh, this mission called Oceans Melting Greenland, or OMG for short. Did you purposely, uh, did you purposely pick that acronym because you knew it would be a great outreach Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's also, you know, I thought really hard about it. Um, You know, it's uh, it's also uh, those three words, oceans melting Greenland. Mm -hmm. That's the science we're doing. You know, we're we're trying to figure out how much the oceans are eating away at the glaciers from the edges. Mm -hmm. And so I I thought, you know, I thought really hard about it. And uh, my my wife came up with some great ideas and somewhere in in all of that. OMG emerged and once I once I had it I was like oh that's it <laughs> that's gotta yeah, be it it's fantastic yeah. were there any other candidates oh well I, I usually like to say that uh it was going to be water temperature and fjords but WTF was already taken oh, so boy. you know <laughs> yeah so anyway yeah. OMG right OMG. oceans melting Greenland what is the right. goal of the project what what is the goal so we're trying to measure the oceans surrounding Greenland uh, along the continental shelf right around the island. There's a, a, lot, of, uh, a lot of the glaciers that, that drain the ice sheet actually reach the water directly so they can feel the warming of the oceans. Now, we think of Greenland melting sort of like an ice cube under a hairdryer, right? The air is getting right. warmer, it's mm-hmm. melting the ice. But in fact, it's much more dynamic than that. The ice is literally sliding off the land into the water. And when it gets there, the conditions in the ocean have an impact on how fast it melts, 
how quickly the glaciers uh, can speed up and retreat. And what we're trying to do is essentially measure the ocean conditions around Greenland uh, once a year for five years. We're also measuring the ice itself. So we're measuring the glaciers all the way around Greenland once a year. And mm -hmm. we're watching the two of them change and asking the question, how are those things related? You know, whenever we see a bunch of warm water, do we see extra fast melt? Um, and when we get a handle on that, the idea is that we'll be able to better predict future sea level rise uh, as the planet warms up and uh, the air and water and ice all cause mm -hmm. melting and sea level rise. Yeah, so something that, you know, almost everyone has heard by this point in 2019 or, or in life is that climate change is happening, the atmosphere is getting warmer, we, t we can talk about 2 degrees Celsius, 1.5 degrees Celsius, etc., um, we know that the, the atmosphere is warming, but one of the things I, I hear a lot less in the media, both scientific and popular media, is the oceans warming. And, yeah. And, right? Information about how the oceans are warming. And as I'm sure, you know, you, you talk about all the time, the oceans are in fact the, the, the bodies that receive almost all of the energy, excess energy produced by greenhouse gases. Yeah, that's um, right. O so why is it why is it such less of a hot topic? Well, you know, I, I think uh, it's it's partly because we don't live in the oceans. Yes, you know, we course. live in the atmosphere uh -huh. and we're watching the atmosphere warm. But in fact, the oceans absorb over, like you said, they absorb over ninety percent of the heat trapped by greenhouse gases. So really, when you ask what's happening with global warming, you're really asking what is the ocean doing because the ocean covers two-thirds of our planet. Uh, it absorbs over 90% of the heat from climate change. Um, and it's also the place where all the melted ice goes when it, when it melts and runs off. So it, when we look at the ocean as a whole, um, it's really the most important part of our changing climate. The atmosphere, in a lot of ways, is just reacting to the warming that's happening in the ocean. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, I, I often I often describe it like a uh, uh, a potato in the oven. You know, mm -hmm. um, if you have a piece of aluminum foil in the oven and it's four hundred degrees, you can reach in and grab it because the aluminum foil doesn't carry any heat. It's uh, it transmits heat really quick, but it doesn't hold any heat. But if you right. wrap that aluminum foil around a potato and you reach in and grab it, it'll it'll burn the crap out of you. Right. Right. Yes. Uh, and the ocean is like the world's potato. Um, and the atmosphere is like that thin layer of aluminum foil wrapped around it. It's really just taking on the temperature of the potato of the oceans. Right. And so, and so OMG, th that's the objective is to, to understand to what degree the warming oceans melt the ice. Um, but the way in which you do it is fascinating to me because you fly these planes and I watch these videos and you fly them real low, right? To the point where it's like scares me being a viewer. <laughs> right, right. Have you ever had like a close call? Because you're flying like what hundreds of feet above the ground. Yeah, yeah. It's a few hundred feet up, and um, the uh, uh, the the thing is that especially in this plane that we're using right now, it's a it's an old rebuilt DC three uh, from World War Two. Um, it's the kind when it lands, like the tail goes down because mm -hmm. it's got a little tail wheel. So, yeah. so you're landing and it's flat and then all of a sudden the, you pitch up like that. It feels like you're going to take off again. It's, it's wild. But uh, this plane flies slow. That's one of its main features is it's slow. 
Uh, and when we're when we're flying low like that, uh, we're you, we're always flying very slow um, and have a good visibility. So we have to have really clear visibility so we can see what we're flying around. Um, and our pilots are excellent um, and and keep us very safe. So I've never been scared in the cockpit that we were gonna you know like hit something or anything. Or not that I'm in the cockpit, but I've never been scared in the plane by where we were, or what we were doing. Uh, but it does make for incredibly dramatic scenery, as you might have. As you might have mm -hmm. seen, we fly into these narrow fjords sometimes. Uh, we kind of duck and dodge, uh, uh, not literally dodge icebergs, but um, oftentimes the places where we want to collect data are covered in ice. And so to, uh, to drop one of these probes accurately, you have to get pretty low. Right. It, it's, it, seems, it seems awesome. It seems fun. <laughs> Man, you guys are communicating. Um, Drop it, drop it, drop it. That's what yeah, you always yell right. at one another. And you yeah, drop one of yeah. these things and they fall. Um, it, it is. It is. It, it's a, I, I consider myself incredibly lucky that I get to do this. It's a lot of fun. It's exciting. Um, and uh, we're, we're dropping these probes. I mean, one of the things about the oceans around Greenland is that they're actually sort of what I call upside down. Uh, and what I mean by that is there's a layer of warm water on top of a layer of cold water. So you have the warm water, excuse me, sorry, I said that backwards. You have a layer of cold water on top of a layer of warm water. Everywhere right. else in the ocean, it's warm on top of cold because the mm -hmm. warm water is lighter, it rises to the top, right? Right. But around Greenland, the warm water is very, very salty because it comes from the Atlantic. And so it's actually heavier and it sits down deep. And that means to measure the temperature of that deep warm water, you have to put a thermometer in it. There's mm -hmm. no way to... Right. to send a radio wave hundreds of meters or uh, hundreds of feet down below the surface of the ocean and measure the water temperature there and get the information back. Mm -hmm. So we have to put sensors in the water and uh, these probes, they actually fall from the surface all the way down to the sea floor and collect temperature and salinity data as they go. So we get a profile of the water conditions from the surface all the way down to the bottom. How do you retrieve the probe? Well, uh, good question. We don't. Um, these probes are actually one-time use. Okay. Uh, and so they're, uh, they split into two parts. One part stays at the surface, and there's mm -hmm. a little bladder that inflates. Um, yeah. That radios the data back to the plane. And the other part falls on a tiny, thin wire all the way down to the sea floor. And uh, over the course of about 15 minutes, it sends the data back, and then the surface part actually sinks. So the whole thing winds up uh, on the seafloor. Mm -hmm. uh, but they have done studies that show that these things uh, decompose over the course of a few years. Yeah. Uh, and, and mostly, uh, almost very little's left, and, and what is left gets covered by sediments usually very pretty quickly. So they're, they're not you know, zero impact on the environment, but mm -hmm. it's pretty low. That's one of the weird, that's one of the, like, the interesting things is I, I talked to my wife about, you know, who I'm talking to today and, and, and what you do and that sort of thing. And I was like, yeah, he, he, he studies climate change by flying planes over the Arctic. And she was like, wait, flying planes over the Arctic? Yeah. I'm like, yeah, but in order to do the research, you, you know, you, right, you, right, you have right. to do something. Well, you yeah, I mean, um, one thing I, yeah, one thing I often point out to people is that, uh, you know, although we're flying a plane, uh, the amount of fuel you would take to travel the same distance in a boat and collect all this data mm -hmm. by ship is way bigger. So in right. fact, actually, this is 
probably the most efficient way to conduct a survey like this where we really want to see all the way around Greenland. Um, and so over the course of a season, which is a few uh, one survey, um, we fly something like seven or 8,000 nautical miles, uh, maybe closer to 10,000 when we go back and forth to, to land because we can't do it all in one shot, right? So uh, it's, a, it's a huge distance to cover because we have to go all the way around Greenland. The, right. the conditions in the ocean are a little bit different um, as you travel around, and that's part of what we're trying to study. So you, you, um, these, these probes, they radio back to the, to the plane, but presumably there's some distance over which that be, stops working. So is it an instantaneous thing? As soon as you drop them, they begin collecting data and sending it back? And, yeah. And then they're, they're, they're essentially done after that? That's right. That's right. It's within minutes. So mm -hmm. uh, it, if we're flying at uh, 500 feet, which is our minimum altitude, um, we, the probe hits the water within a few seconds. They fall at about 60 miles an hour. Uh, so it's you know 10 or 15 seconds. The probe is in the water and almost immediately they start transmitting data. And within another 30 or 40 seconds, the probe starts falling down to the sea floor. Uh, and by about eight or nine minutes after going out of the out of the aircraft, uh, they're on the bottom. They're done recording data, and we can fly on. Um, so occasionally we do have to stay in the area, like if there's a really steep fjord, uh, mm -hmm. or if we're going to go around a corner and lose sight of it. But if we're in the open ocean, in fact, we can fly. Uh, you know, we can get five or ten miles away and still get a pretty good radio signal. I see. And do you, do you do do you map the entire coast of Greenland, uh, Greenland every single year? We do. We do. Uh, if you look at the survey plan, there's a couple little gaps where either there's not very many data, uh, not very many glaciers, excuse me, not very many glaciers that reach the ocean, or mm -hmm. there's other surveys going on. Uh, but we really cover the whole coastline. Um, that's why it's ten thousand miles to do it because we go uh, we go so far all the way around the island, um, and and it's it's. It's exciting and important because it's the first time we've ever mapped such a big area of the ocean. Lots of these places have never had any of this kind of data collected. So we're seeing, you know, the first few years we were seeing just, you know, all new what, what was going up, what was going on on, on the shelf around Greenland. Yeah, it's insane. I, I read the, um, I read these like NASA statistics because I, I do a lot of outreach as well. I, I sit in your seat. A lot. That's awesome. <laughs> Keep and, doing um, it. Yes, <laughs> that's I will. great and, work. Yeah. And um, you know, one of the things that's burned in my head is that over the past two decades, we see an average. Well, 1996 to 2016. I don't know how well the data is yet for 2016, 2019, but you're losing 286 billion metric tons of ice per year off of Greenland, right? Right. That, that's a that's the NASA figure. And I want right. to ask you about that because I, I I'm not quite sure on this. Is that like um, ice that you you lose and you don't get back? Because is there not also seasonal melting that happens in, in the Arctic? Right. That's the difference uh, in the seasonal melting and snow. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's actually net loss. That's wow. ice we're, we're not going to get back, right? I mean, every year there's, um, you know, some... Uh, I don't have the number off the top of my head, but hundreds of billions of tons of snow falls on the ice sheet. Mm -hmm. And then hundreds of billions of tons 
melts and also it doesn't just melt it also breaks off because remember the ice is flowing into the water mm -hmm. and when it gets there that breaks off in terms of in, chunk, in right. chunks mm -hmm. called icebergs right and so it's calving off these icebergs and that number of 280 billion tons a year that's the difference between those so that's the the net loss uh, of snow minus melt and iceberg calving that's one of those numbers that when I hear it, it's equivalent to hearing the number of stars in the galaxy. <clears throat> right. <laughs> and like maybe you're, you're numb to it by now because I'm sort of numb to, you know, when I when I talk to people and I say, hey, hold your hold your hand up to the sky behind your hand right now. There's 100 billion galaxies or something. And in each one of them, there's 200 billion stars like I'm numb to that language. It doesn't really do it for me anymore. It doesn't it doesn't right. trigger anything magical in my head unless I really sit down and stew on it. Do, do you did does that mean anything to you 286 billion tons do you ever sit yeah. down because i think that and i'm like 286 billion tons that's insane like that's an unfathomable amount of water right, right. that you're right. or ice that you're losing into the sea into the ocean um i don't know it, it it boggles my mind to the point where i can't even comprehend i like the other thing is i th think to myself if we're losing that much Number one, how vast must Greenland be? And number yeah. two, how have we not lost it all yet? Like those are the right, two things right. that come to my brain. Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the first things that really, uh, really popped out at me when when we did this survey the first year, we there was at one point where we flew across the ice sheet, so we were just trying to get from one side mm -hmm. of the Greenland to the other. And so uh, that year, and in that survey, we were actually in a jet, and we flew for like two hours, and all we saw was Greenland, you yeah. know, just miles and miles, hundreds of miles in every direction, uh, ice. And that ice is two miles thick. Right. So it's a massive quantity. It's, it's, the amount of ice in Greenland is huge. Uh, and one way to think of that is that it's enough ice to raise sea levels by 25 feet if all of it melted today. Globally, uh, 25 feet. Globally, 25 feet. So, which, you know, is startling when you, when you remember that that's two-thirds of the planet's surface right. rising mm -hmm. by 25 feet. So, literally reshaping the entire planet. Um, and the number that you quoted at the beginning, uh, the 285 um, billion tons a year over the last about 15 years, mm -hmm. uh, since the early 2000s when the GRACE satellites uh, launched, uh, another NASA mission that's fun to talk about. But um, we, uh, uh, we've seen about a centimeter of sea level rise, so a little less than half an inch of sea level rise, just from that four or so, three and a half or four trillion tons of ice lost mm -hmm. during that 10 or 15 year period. So, you know, we're, we're, we're already reshaping the planet, right? And mm -hmm. a, a, a half inch um, seems really small in terms of sea level rise when you're standing on the beach, but you got to remember, it's a half inch spread out over two thirds of the planet's surface. Right. So it's a and, lot. It's a huge amount of water. And another half inch in New Orleans is gone. Exactly. That's New right. Orleans That's is, right. a, is a half inch from being gone. Right. So, you know, they'll have to figure that one out. But... It's it's it 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 boggles the mind. Greenland. How long do you stay in? Like, how long does it take you to drop probes around the entire coastline of Greenland? 
It's a, it's a few weeks. Um, there was one year we had a C-130 uh, for a variety of weird, weird reasons, which is super fast and can do very long flights. And we did it in about a week, a uh, week and a half. Uh, really? But generally speaking, um, when we fly on our normal plane, it's three or four weeks, something like that. We were about four weeks this year uh, in Greenland. And I expect that to be similar in, in uh, the next couple of years before we're done. And you're there the entire time. What is what is Greenland like? I didn't realize how far Greenland was from me. I live in Rochester, yeah. New York. I live on the on the on the, on the lake, Lake Ontario, and I didn't realize that it would take me the same amount of miles to go to Greenland, like most of the major hubs. What's the major hub in Greenland? It's uh, but the big one on this on the east coast is is called Kangerlussuaq. Kangerlussuaq. Kanger, Kanger Luswak, yeah. Kanger Sometimes Luswak. just Kanger, yeah, for sure. That's crazy. Okay, yeah. so it, it, that's the same distance, like nearly the same distance as it is for me to go to Venezuela. Right. That blows right. my mind. I, I, I don't know, man. I, I, it gets so cold here in the winter. I just thought it was like two hundred miles north. I didn't even know. Yeah. Of, I don't even. <laughs> I don't realize how far away. And then I'm looking at maps today, and I'm like, Alaska is that close to Russia? Because I didn't know that. Right. Either. I need to go right, back to right. the problem with geography is they put everything on a 2D surface. You don't know you don't know yeah. what's going on. You know, globes, they blow my mind every time I look at them. I discover something new. But how so you, you spend you know a month there essentially a year. Right. What is what is civilization? I have no concept of what civilization <laughs> is like in Greenland. I, I yeah. looked it up and I'm like some people are like, eh, it's mostly normal, and then there's other people like completely not normal. It seems to be completely dependent on where you are. Yeah, yeah. So there's about 55,000 people in Greenland. Uh, that's the total population. And the population is 90% uh, of it is Greenlandic people. So descendants of people that have been in Greenland for a thousand years, mm -hmm. <laughs> basically. Uh, and then the 10%, it, the other 10% is Danish or mostly Danish. And they, uh, uh, it is a Danish ruled country. Uh, but it's it's also self-governed, so they have a mm -hmm. self-government uh, there by and large. But the Greenlandic people, it's it's interesting. So fifty-five thousand is small, like you know, that's a tiny town, right? Right. Yeah. And it's spread out over the entirety of the island of Greenland. That, that many people live in my apartment building. Yeah. Right. And it's, exactly. and it's only three stories, and it's only right. three stories. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. You know. Uh, yeah, that's like a, that's like a blink on the highway as you go mm -hmm. by, right? Yeah. Um, and so it's, a, it's, it's the most, uh, uh, the most sparsely populated country in the world. Uh, the least, the small, the lowest population density of any country in the world. Uh, and, and, uh, there are a few big cities. The biggest one is Nuke and it's about one third. It's like 17,000 people. It's about one third of the whole population. Um, and most of the rest is spread out in tiny little towns and villages of varying sizes. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're mostly full of Greenlandic people. And, and they have this interesting existence, these really interesting lives. A lot of them are subsistence fishermen or subsistence mm -hmm. hunters. So they literally live by going out and killing seals or uh, narwhal or hunting moose uh, was another big, or not moose, but uh, um, muskox. Yeah, I was going to say uh, is another I, I actually is knew another that big. One. Yeah. yeah, right. So they they go out and they they hunt, and then and then fishing is also a huge uh, uh, part of their industry. Now, as 
climate change has started to settle in, they've actually begun to uh, to um, uh, uh, mine actually because mm-hmm. uh, the the land in Greenland is actually really rich in um, in uh, all kinds of um, Precious metals, metals and precious metals and and ore of different kinds. Uh So there's a lot of mining and and actually there's other industry where they're talking about uh, mining sand from Greenland. Sand is actually one of the most heavily traded commodities in the world. Really? Yeah, it's surprising. Why? Uh, But uh, beaches, people rebuild beaches. Oh, man. uh, You know, in Saudi Arabia, they build Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, it's the people in Dubai. They're just building (laughs) palm trees. They're building cars. They're building everything in the sand over there. Right, right. So uh, uh, they're beginning to use the the resources in a more industrial way. Mm -hmm. But they've always been a very industrious people. Like, they've they've survived, you know, like the Little Ice Age— uh, and the medieval warm period in Greenland, uh, and are, already know what surviving climate change is like, probably better than the rest of us. When you talk to them, do they have like anecdotal evidence of the history of the Earth's climate, like passed down through their generations? Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, cool. And th- there have been some scientific yeah. efforts to try and like mine that and reconcile it with other records that we mm-hmm. have. Uh, and, uh, but even, you know, even just anecdotally in, in the lives of, uh, you know, sort of middle-aged people today, they've watched the ice retreat and the glaciers retreat. They've watched the summers get longer and the, the period where there's sea ice, which is actually very important for them as well as like the polar bears who hunt from it, uh, get shorter. And so they're, they're watching climate change happen from the front seat and uh the rest of the world is driving from the back yeah it's uh it's it's unfortunate and i see these uh i saw i read an article the other day there was wildfires in greenland this year and for the past few years um i don't know if it's typical for them to have a wildfire season but it's it's become typical so there's uh you know there's larger areas i mean the south uh the southwest part of greenland has had way less ice, partly just because of the local climate conditions there. Mm-hmm. Uh, they get some uh, some warmth and moisture out of the Labrador Sea, which is the yeah. kind of north uh, west corner of the Atlantic Ocean. Um, and so they've they've had a more temperate climate, and the glaciers there have actually retreated and 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 mostly sit way up in these canyons. So there's actually a fair amount of land in the southwest, uh, but. They're starting to see similar things happen further north. Uh, the The glaciers are retreating all around, and um, life is is changing really, really rapidly there. Yeah, have you seen anything while you were in Greenland? Like the time you spend there, have you seen something that that really like? Um, maybe obviously you're in the climate community, you're in the climate change community, you're in the climate research community. So you know this is a real threat. You know this is an existential threat. You're working on it every day. Your colleagues are too. But have you seen anything since you've been in Greenland that made you sort of open your eyes more than they were already open and be like, wow, that is this is a this is a problem. This is a really big yeah. problem. Yeah, well, this year um there was actually a uh a, a pretty much a record warm spell. There was a heat wave in Greenland. Um and almost the entire surface of the ice sheet saw melt this year. 
um, which is really rare. It's only happened once, I think in 2012, uh, any time in the last many hundreds and probably thousands of years. Right. And so it, it's, there are these records getting set that are kind of impressive. But uh, this year, actually, we were in Thule, which is an Air Force base in the far northwest corner of, of Greenland. So it's way up north. It's mm -hmm. at like 80-something, I think, um, degrees of latitude. Right. So it's, yeah, yeah. It's, uh -huh. it's cold. <laughs> and, and 80 degrees Fahrenheit and, as well. Yeah, we're getting Yeah, it. right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. This year it was. This year it was. Uh, and uh, last year, I actually hiked out of Thule, there are a few things you can do uh, just off the Air Force Base. Um, I went with a group and we hiked to an ice cave, uh, which is sort of a little remnant of a glacier where there's melt in the bottom and and uh, actually you can, it, it sort of melts out this sort of hollow uh, underneath the, the ice and you can walk into it and you can, so you're basically inside a glacier. Right. Um, and this one was a small one, just kind of nestled into a little valley. And um, uh, I was told by one of the the people who worked there this year that this year it collapsed. Uh, so, you know, oh. a year ago we mm -hmm. were standing under 20 feet of ice. Um, and now when you walk into the ice cave, uh, what's left of it is so thin that, you know, it's... Uh, you know, it's almost not even a cave anymore and there's holes and things in it. So just in one big melt year, this kind of beautiful ice cave, this sort of amazing little feature that we got to climb around in, uh, disappeared. And it was, a, you know, it's, it was a small chunk of ice. It's not like that chunk of ice raised sea level by a perceptible amount, but, uh, but it was, it was striking because I'd been there because I right. yeah. walked into it and seen it. We hear all about animals, right? We hear about the polar bears. We hear about the walruses, et cetera. What I don't hear a lot about is the humans. Like, I don't hear a lot about the way in which the change in climate is affecting the Greenlandic people or the way that climate change is affecting the people that live in Alaska, per se, or the people in northern Canada. Do you think more effort should be done to document the lives of, say, the, the Inuit people that still live in Greenland and the way in which their lives are drastically changing? because of something that realistically they have very little to do with? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There's definitely changes, you know, and there, there's going to be, their economy is going to, is going to completely, uh, is going to completely shift. Um, and their, their lifestyle is going to change. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it can be hard too, though, because they've, you know, they've mostly been, they've, they've maintained a lot their lifestyle. Um, but as, always happens when Western culture kind of creeps in, uh, the, the Inuit uh, sort of way of life was already on the decline. And so sometimes it's hard to, uh, you know, the kind of traditional hunters and, mm -hmm. and fishermen. Um, so sometimes it's hard to separate those things, right? Mm -hmm. uh, how much of it is cultural and how much of it is really climate driven. Right. Um, yeah, it's but true. It's definitely both. Uh, in Greenland. It's definitely both because it's getting harder to, um, you know, it's getting harder to uh, uh, maintain um, that kind of, uh, that kind of um, lifestyle right. when yeah. the, the, the wildlife is changing, the ice is changing, the entire climate is changing. Um, and so it's a, it's a challenge. But in fact, 
You don't have to go as far as Greenland to see how climate change is affecting people. Of course. Uh, right here on the west coast of California, there are small towns and cities that are beginning to try to decide whether to move away from the coastline as sea level rises. Right. Um, the 100-year flood in San Francisco happens every 10 years now. Um, and this is a story that's recurring all over our coasts. Uh, and none of those stories are told very, uh, very frequently. We mostly don't hear about it. Yeah, uh, here in, in Rochester, Lake Ontario was flooded so incredibly bad this year that you couldn't even access any of the beaches until like mid-July in most places because yeah. the water level was so incredibly high. Um, almost every, you know, bordering property was flooded. I mean, we're literally still getting flood warnings to, to de like to this day. Uh, my phone will ping, you know flood watch on the lake wow. ontario shoreline it's it's con and it's constant and it's it's way worse than it has ever been in the history of you know recorded recorded uh, water levels in lake ontario and it's affecting like everyone in this area that lives anywhere near the the coast um i don't know you know what america's gonna do is they're just gonna shuffle the poor people next to the coastline right. so you know right. the, the the poor people are gonna have nice waterfront properties for a few years and then We'll push them back a little more, um, but yeah. uh, you know, but it's 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 there needs to be way more effort put into telling that story. Unfortunately, you have you know climate denial that right. plays an right. an intricate part in in this because of course you get paid by a company, right? You get paid by a company that gives you millions of dollars to shill away. I assume um, is right. that wrong? Well. NASA actually is is the the company, so it's a government agency. Of course, uh, and I was kidding. Uh, They're not yeah, paying right. millions. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, but you know who does get paid by a big company are the people saying that climate change yes. isn't happening. Of course, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's this sort of classic. Um, it's a sort of classic propaganda technique of accusing your enemy of your own crimes, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and it's easy to do because if you're committing those crimes, you know all about them, <laughs> right? right? Yes. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a kind of classic dodge here where, um, you know, you have uh, scientists working for government agencies like me mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, doing, doing research that we... Uh, that we have to compete to do, you know, this was a, yeah. OMG was a, a, a competitive process. It was a, uh, I had to write a, a proposal for $30 million and right. um, compete with a whole bunch of other people who wrote proposals for $30 million and, and you know, we eventually won. So it's a, it's a, you know, it's this difficult competitive process. Uh, and, and meanwhile, the misinformation is kind of just being funded for free, right? You know, right. these huge corporations uh, literally pay people to, uh, to send out misinformation. And um, there's, you know, it's, it's a major problem because we don't, as scientists, we, we mostly don't have the tools to deal with that. Right. Well, you, we, we have some tools and this is one of them. Right. right, right. This exactly, is this exactly. is one of the tools. Um, yeah. And yeah. you, from what I gather in in reading as much about you and your career and and listening to some interviews you've done before, is that you understand the value of taking people that don't necessarily agree with you, finding common ground, and talking to them like human beings. 
And that's something that I don't see enough of, not just in sci- not just in climate, but in science in general, is I don't see that like effort to relate to people and then talk to them. Because you have to get over the fact that climate change has been so been made so political. You have to jump because if if you start spewing climate change information, then you will automatically be assumed to be a crazy leftist. Right. right. <laughs> I mean, that's how it goes. Assumed um, so by you, some people, right? Yeah, exactly. Yes, right. and you have to, you know, get over that hurdle, and and start trying to relate to people and talk to people, and I don't see a lot of my fellow scientists trying to do that, and it's unfortunate because I think that that's I think the solution to most problems lies in talking to the people who have a differing viewpoint than you do. Um, yeah, I agree, and and uh, you know we're it's um, we're not trained or and we're not re- rewarded for uh, for right. learning how to communicate to the public really in, mm-hmm. in science, um, and I think it's uh, I think it's a little bit of a shame because um, uh, it's in my opinion it's important. In fact, I think it's important for all scientists to communicate what they do to yeah. to a broad audience because. Typically, it's the broad audience that's paying for it, right? I exactly, a hundred percent. Yeah, mostly government funded, and uh, but uh, I think in the in terms of climate science, I think we have an even bigger responsibility because climate change is happening to everyone, yeah. and if we don't have if we don't take some time to explain it to people, um, then I feel like we're to explain what literally what we're finding that I think we're we're kind of not really doing our job. So I see it as a as a responsibility, um, and it's tough for it's tough to put that on on scientists, um, but I, because they're busy, you know, and it's a struggle. Science of course. is a struggle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? No, it's not a scientist uh, problem. Yeah. It's a scientific. Um, what should we say? A, I don't want to call it an industry. It's it's an industry wide issue. That, yeah. is a, that is a result of the fact that every scientist is working their ass off on a million things, you right. know? Right, and, right. And, you know, of course, it is important for you to do your work as much as it is, is as important for you to communicate your work. But there's nothing to communicate if you don't do it first. So it's, it's, it's a weird situation that we're all put in with all of our research, whether it be black holes or climate or neutron stars or astronomy or galaxies, everything. Right. Right. Um, right. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a tough gig. It is. It is. (laughs) But But uh, there's absolutely value in talking to people about it. Absolutely. And and I I think it's encouraging because I think the younger generation of scientists already gets that. Um, You know, I have uh, for the I I do a lot of social media and I have for several years. But this year was the first year when I was doing the OMG survey that I uh, uh, posted on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Right. Um, all three different audiences, interestingly. Uh, but in fact, actually, I was really surprised that a lot of my colleagues were uh, tweeting as well. And in mm-hmm. fact, I connected up with a few folks in the field uh, and collaborated a bit because of Twitter. So right. <laughs> in fact, uh, young sci- younger scientists, by and large, are aware of this do talk about their research on social media and and are making an effort to uh, to communicate with people and so to me that's real that's that's really satisfying. Yeah, Twitter's um, the Twitter's the one that's insane for science. Like yeah, Twitter is yeah. an incredibly good platform for science. They've made it their home. 
I don't see the same amount of, of you know, stuff on Facebook and Instagram as I do on Twitter. Right, I just think right. Twitter's an excellent platform for scientific discourse, talking about science, more so than Instagram is, um, because you need a picture attached to it. And for right. a lot of people's research, it's hard to capture a picture that is actually going to catch people's eyes and not just like a plot um, that has to be explained. So <clears throat> it's an interesting new world that we're entering. And even me, like I've only been on Twitter for like a year. I just sort of got into Twitter recently and it, it blew my mind to see how many people like all over the field, this entire field, like almost everyone I know and talk yeah. to is communicating science on Twitter. Right, right. It, it's awesome to see. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. I think it's fantastic. And I, I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really encouraged to see it. Um, but I was also really happy that, uh, that I used all three flat platforms when I was in the field because mm -hmm. it did reach a wider audience. You know, yes. a bunch of people on Instagram really love to see pictures of icebergs and the airplane mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Uh, and Facebook was similar, but but with a little bit more information. And so yeah, yeah, yeah. I was able to explain a little bit. Here's what we're doing, and here's you know here's what's going on. This is where we are today, and this is where we're going tomorrow. Uh, and each one of them had a different audience. You know, I had uh, I had people who were interested in just visually what Greenland looked like, and on Instagram, Facebook, I got to go into more detail, and then like science and you know actually some media folks were following me on twitter and so it was uh, yeah. it was an exciting time yeah yeah in, you see you're lucky because you have an aesthetically pleasing research uh, right. field right <laughs> like pictures of greenland are that's like what instagram's made for right know? if you right, just put right. like a, a white girl posing i mean that's instagram that's the entire <laughs> right. site Right. Um, <laughs> i say that as i drink a pumpkin spice latte of course um <laughs> but uh you know, it's, it's, uh, I, unfortunately my, my research is aesthetically pleasing once every two years. I model black <laughs> holes and neutron stars. So when you produce the one video, when your code right. runs the one time every yeah. couple of years, you have a great video. But until then I just have to post selfies and pictures of my pumpkin spice. Um, but you know, that's what I'm relegated to. So Instagram doesn't work great for the show. I post clips and stuff with the show on so that yeah, it's yeah. good for that. But Instagram is by far the one that I get the least traction on. Out of all the social right. media sites. Twitter, though, Twitter's a, a fantastic platform. Now, to transition, Josh, Climate Elvis. <laughs> I love it. Oh. I, I love the... the how how um, ingrained into the comedy scene are you? Uh, well, uh, pretty. Um, I started taking uh, improv classes about seven years ago, and I went through the Second City Hollywood Conservatory program yeah. uh, here, in, here in L.A. Uh, so I have actually blurred out on the wall behind me is like my Ph.D. over here mm -hmm. yeah. and my certificate from Second City Wow. <laughs> right there. Yeah. So yeah. So I uh, uh, I love doing. I love improvising. Um, if you haven't ever uh, improvised or taken an improv class, you should take one. Um, it's really fun, and it's great for it's great for helping you learn new ways to communicate and to connect with people and and kind of opening up your mind to to being creative again, which is which is really what happened to me. I had. I'd been in the science business for a whole lot of years, and mm -hmm. I uh, uh, wound up in an improv class, and I was like, oh, man, I missed this. I haven't done yeah. this in so long. Um, 
So I, I perform, I went through Second City and I took some classes at the Groundlings and now I perform regularly with a, a small company called Turbine, Turbine mm -hmm. Arts Collective. Uh, and we improvise and put on shows. Uh, we have one coming up for Halloween in a couple weeks uh, that's a, a, like a 15 minute production of Zombie Romeo and Juliet. Oh boy. So it should be fun. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it's it's really cool. And um, I think that it gives you an edge when you communicate to people. Like those videos you make. Um, uh, what's the one? Sci scientist Guy? Is that what it's called? Oh, Guy Scientist? Guy yeah. Scientist. <laughs> right. That's a, that's a good video. Is that story Thank true? Thank you. Is Yeah, it is. It's a true it's story. You know, true. I tell it. I tell it as a character, but... Uh, uh, it's a true story. It really happened to me, and and uh, I I was down in Orange County giving a talk about global warming, and it happened mm -hmm. to be a talk to a bunch of like rich oil barons, <laughs> right. and uh, uh, they uh, I was at the country club, and I I always did this experiment at the time where you take a balloon uh, and you hold a flame through to it, and if it's filled with air, it pops, mm -hmm. uh, and then if you hold a flame to a water balloon. It doesn't pop, um, yeah. and the reason is because the water is so good at absorbing heat, and it's a metaphor for the ocean, like we were talking about mm -hmm. earlier. You know, the ocean's absorbing over ninety percent of the heat from greenhouse gases, so waters are really good at, at, at absorbing heat. So I'm standing there, and uh, I did the balloon with air, and it popped, and you know, oh, you know, a lot of hubbub. Yeah. And I said, and now if you take a balloon filled with water and you hold it up and you hold a flame to it, and boom, it just exploded. I mean, it, it was it, it wasn't even like you know, it, it wasn't even <laughs> obvious what went wrong. Literally, the flame touched it, and it just. So the guy put a put a <laughs> put a napkin over the spot on the floor, and uh, you know my talk was pretty much ruined. I mean they were they were a nice bunch of guys, and they yeah. they gave me some slack. I was like that never usually happens, uh, but apparently uh, the moral of the story is that if you're rich enough, then the laws of physics don't actually apply yeah. anymore. That, yeah, I mean I I believe it. Yeah, <laughs> that might be how it actually works. Um, right, but I think so. Man, so. <laughs> It's so that's such an insane story. Did they even pay attention to the rest of your what what, what happened after it? You were just like yeah, I'm so, just going to leave. You know, yeah. right? I I should have probably just climate change is a hoax and you Yeah, just never out. mind. <laughs> I probably should have just slunk off at that point, just like left the slowly walked out of the room. But I stuck around, you know, and I I argued with these old guys cuz that's what I do, you know. That's mm -hmm. I I try and I try and educate people about climate change. And, uh, you know, but I, I think that was pretty much it for my credibility. They, they were like, oh, man, this guy. I don't know what's wrong with him, but I'm sure <laughs> global warming's not real now. <laughs> yeah. How do, how do you even get that gig, though? How do you get that speaking gig? Well, I do a lot of public speaking. And, uh, you know, sometimes people come to JPL and say, hey, can you do a talk? Or they find me on uh, online as Climate yeah. Elvis. Uh, or there's a news story that comes out or something. Uh, but ever since I got to JPL, I've, I've just, if you look for the opportunities, they're almost always there. I could give a talk every week, uh, a public talk every week if I right. had the time to. Um, and just doing a bunch of them, uh, you know, folks kind of get to know you. And somebody reached out from this uh, uh, this kind of, uh, you know, good old boys club <laughs> that had a mm -hmm. lunch every every month in, uh, uh, in um, uh, Orange County. And uh, the Newport Beach Country Club, in fact, and um, and I went, and the rest is history. 
<laughs> oh, that's insane. Country clubs are insane to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't know I, about I, you, but... Like, I drove I mean, up in my hybrid, and they were definitely, like, giving me the side eye, you know? <laughs> yeah, they were probably mad you weren't using their product. Right. Yeah, right. they were probably getting a little upset. Now, I drive a gas car, and I've been thinking about this recently. I don't know if this will work. But there's so much parking at the university I go to, Rochester Institute of Technology, for hybrid cars. That's, like, their way of, uh, you know, trying to get people to drive clean cars. And um, I'm so tempted to just take the the little plug and put it in the gas tank just so i can get good parking <laughs> just to and, see what... <laughs> yeah i don't know if that'll your work little, your yeah. little act of eco-terrorism i like mm-hmm. it it's good <laughs> yeah because you know they i gotta park so far away i drive gas around and i gotta park so far yeah. away i gotta use my legs yeah, yeah. it's just not fair if you I ask know. me but i know i know it's, so, it's terrible it's a yeah calamity. <laughs> so I, I think i'm gonna start going you just yeah. made me think about that and i think i have to start going down that route <laughs> well and you know I'm, it's it's one of the things it's, it's a good point because i i uh you know, right now, making choices, making green choices is expensive. Of course. Right? And yeah. it's kind of the, it's kind of the uh, thing that like rich people <laughs> do that can afford it. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think part of, you know, and there's, there's some discussion about this, but I think part of it is that it's time to shift the responsibility for making this change uh, to governments and corporations because, yeah, yeah I mean, I, I think that, uh, and there's kind of a growing, um, there's kind of a growing sense of this, that it's, a, it's time to shift responsibility away from individual people. You know, mm-hmm. it's time to stop telling people, oh, you have to do this and this and this and shop this way and buy that. Um, it's great. You should do all those things and they put pressure, it puts pressure on corporations, but we have to have laws that address this. You know, we have to have corporations yeah. and governments uh, actually, you know, chiming in and, and making a difference here, or we're not going to be able to really address the problem. Yeah. Well, one of the, you know, one of the problems that I foresee will affect us in the future and is affecting other countries now is that there's, there can be ambiguity in making those laws, right? Because there's certain things that are still, we're still a little unclear on the, the magnitude of which we are actually addressing the problem and in in what ways we are just shifting it to another problem down the line. Right. 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 So so you know you can talk about mining lithium and cobalt for batteries. You can talk about the the current debate that's happening in the in the beef industry um shifting away from from eating meat and shifting towards eating more vegetables and um the environmental impact of of agriculture in general doesn't, you know, it's bad for beef, it's also bad for soy, it's also, you know what I mean? So Right. It's we're in a very interesting time where we understand there's a problem. We understand some general things we can do to fix it, but we're not clear on all of the decisions that we should be making. Right. And that's one of the biggest issues with legislation is that we we have a tough time discerning what is and what isn't good. Yeah, right. But I think I think there's a you know, there's a lot of basic steps that you could you could take to begin doing this like yeah let's let's start by removing the subsidies for like fossil fuels right, right. i mean we yeah we have huge giveaways to all these companies and you know if we started if we started investing that money in renewables then we would develop the solutions to a lot of these problems a lot more quickly, right? Yeah, and it's, 100%. It's not yeah. going to be a, yeah, and it's not going to be a silver bullet. It's not going to be like somebody goes, oh, we'll do this, 
and yes. then all of our problems are solved, right? right? There'll be different solutions for different places, but we need leadership at the top to, to begin that process in earnest, to really start to push for uh, solutions. And, you know, it's sort of like, uh, I mean, in, in California, you know, we have a pretty green uh, electricity grid, not completely, mm -hmm. but we have a lot of wind power. Uh, we have a lot of uh, hydroelectric. Um, solar is a growing part of the mix. Um, but, you know, there's still there's still fossil fuels that are used for burning. Uh, there's still a lot of burning of fossil fuels for power. Um, but, you know, uh, having a, you know, having an electric car in California um, is a different thing than having it in like Wyoming. Right. right. Where, yeah. you know, you're still you're, you're still using fossil fuels to charge it by and large. So yeah. and yeah, all those things about manufacturing industry, those are all tough problems. Uh, but they probably all have solutions as long as we're all on the same page. You know, right. there, there, there are yeah. ways around. I think we can uh, we can engineer our way around those things um, as long as we're all, you know, headed in the same direction. Yeah. And there's you know, there's also some interesting um, analysis that can be done on on some something as simple as like pushing for um, glass straws over plastic straws. Right. right. That that that's maybe a good individual decision to make, but there is this growing belief that the individual can actually do something. And while you can sort of bring down your own footprint, your own carbon footprint, the problem is not an individualistic problem. Right. right. You switching to glass straws or the entire country switching to glass straws realistically only puts a tiny little dent in the larger problem which is that we we somehow have to get the world unified on this thing. Um, right. One of the interesting statistics I, I heard recently, and I didn't know this, is that I, I always hear this, um, this, this thing that's said by pundits that uh, even if the U.S. fixed their problem, we only account for 15% of global carbon emissions, so you still have to contend with China and India and, and you know Russia and dozens of other countries that pollute much more than us. Um, or at least on, on par with us. What I didn't know is that per capita, like per person, we are at the very tippy top of developed countries. And right. I didn't know that, right? right. So although right. China produces, you know, double the amount of carbon as us, maybe more, they have triple, quadruple the amount of people as us. <laughs> right. right, right. So yeah, um, there is absolutely a, a, something to be solved here in America. And my point about the straws was that we need to maybe take a little bit of the focus off the individual, which is a, a, a little bit about what you were saying earlier, and start putting more of the focus on the corporations to to make changes, both in carbon and in the in the realm of pollution, physical yeah. pollution. I mean, you have yeah. the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which is is the size of Texas, sitting right. out in the Pacific Ocean, which just blows my mind. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we have a, we have, uh, we've kind of come awake to this realization of, of the scope of our pollution, right? I mean, I think people have been talking about pollution and there have been instances where specific things have been, you know, come to light and changed. And, you know, yeah, if you, if you were to magically transport back to, the turn of the last century, right, 1901, mm -hmm. and see the smokestacks and the clouds of smoke, right. you'd be like, oh, yeah. we're doing great, right? Uh -huh. But uh, 
but I think, you know, the scope of like the plastics issue, uh, which persists in the environment for way too long, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and, and carbon dioxide are, are really just beginning to be appreciated. Um, yeah. but it's going to take not just our individual action. And, and I, I've been saying this for years, actually, it, you know, yes, you should plant a tree and drive a hybrid if you can. Right. But the most important thing you can do is vote. Uh, right. And tell your tell your elected officials that this is a big deal and that you care about it and you you know you want to save the planet right mm -hmm. uh, because they're they're out there uh, they're out there making these decisions and if you don't tell them what you want uh, they don't know right it's a yeah. representative government they're there to represent exactly. your yeah. your needs yeah yeah so w w where do you f foresee the solution to be. Because uh, people ask me this all the time. They assume that because I'm a scientist, I have the answers to every scientific problem. But I don't have the answer to that problem, like wh where the solution might lie. Do you think it's in carbon capture technologies? Do you think it's in renewables? Where do you think it is? I mean, I think it's got to be renewables. Uh, I, mm -hmm. think, I, I think, you know, you, you, we have to shift energy sources. Yeah. Uh, capturing the carbon may be necessary. Like we may need to do some of that. And yeah. a lot of those other things probably need to happen also. But until we shift to uh, fuel sources that don't add carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, we're going to continue to make the problem worse. And, and it's, you know, it's, it, it has the potential to get away from us too, right? We, we might begin to cross thresholds where We've warmed it up enough that even if we stop putting CO2 in the air today, it's going to keep going. And right. that's, those are things that we're, you know, these tipping points are, are things that we don't really understand in the climate because mm -hmm. we've never watched the world warm up like this before. So we're learning as we go. And that's one of the scariest parts. Yeah. So what we, we haven't talked yet about OMG and what you've actually found We've talked about yeah. how it works. We've talked about um, why the, the motivation. But, you know, centered around this climate talk, um, what has OMG been able to tell us about the future of the climate? Well, we've done a whole lot of work uh, in the first few years. Um, some of it has been looking at the temperature and the ice change, but we've actually also done a lot of work mapping the seafloor because mm -hmm. it turned out that just the shape and depth of the water around Greenland was almost unknown. So we had we had these areas of the continental shelf where you know it was just a blank slate. And mm -hmm. when we collected this data, it turned out that the shelf was this complicated network of underwater canyons that were carved out by the ancient glaciers. So in the last ice age, Greenland was much bigger. The ice in Greenland was much bigger. These glaciers extended miles and miles, uh, often out to the continental shelf itself. Uh, the edge of the shelf, and mm -hmm. so these uh, these uh, glaciers dug these troughs right into the continental shelf, and that's important because you remember we were talking earlier about how the water uh, is warm down below mm -hmm. and cold at the surface, and that warm water has to make it up on the shelf yeah. through the network of underwater canyons and into the fjords where the modern day glaciers sit in yeah. order to have an impact on the ice sheet. Mm -hmm. So we mapped a lot of that out. And one of the main things we found in doing that was that there were a lot more glaciers sitting in deep water than we thought. Uh, and 
you know, in deep water is both a metaphor for their, <laughs> for their <laughs> yeah. situation as well as an actual fact. Um, in fact, uh, we continue to make little discoveries about just the, just the geometry of the glaciers. This year, when we were flying in northwest Greenland, we flew over uh, a glacier um, that had never been sampled. We had never made it right to the face of the glacier uh, in a boat. And we dropped one of these little probes, and the probe went all the way down uh, a thousand meters and continued to collect data. And actually, that's as long as the little cable is. So what we know is that that glacier sits in more than a thousand meters of water. Um, and it was totally unknown. You know, we had no idea how deep it was there before we dropped that probe just a few months ago. So uh, what we're continuing to learn is that the glaciers are in more contact with the water than we thought. So more of the ice sheet, more of the glaciers are in contact with the water. That means there's a bigger potential for fast sea level rise in the future. But the biggest result we've had so far has actually been really surprising. In West Greenland, the largest glacier in Greenland called Jakobshavn actually slowed down and grew in the first three years of OMG. Uh, when you say slowed really down, do you mean like the, are you talking about the rate at which it slopes off of land? That's exactly right. Okay. So the glacier is basically like a river of ice carrying mm -hmm. this water off the land in, into the ocean and it breaks off at the edge and gets renewed by new ice coming in yeah. from up above. And in the case of Jakobshavn, it was actually, uh, it had actually sped up um, about 20 years ago and was, is just dumping ice like gangbusters into the water. Mm -hmm. And for the first time in 20 years, it slowed down. Um, and it not only slowed down the front, which had been retreating and breaking off higher and higher upstream, uh, actually advanced by a substantial amount in the first year yeah. of, of our mission. And you want to guess why all this stuff happened? I don't want to guess. <laughs> well, it's right there in the title of the mission, Oceans Melting Greenland. Ah, um, yes. The See, reason was, yeah, the oceans changed. Yes. Uh, in, in fact, what happened was there's a natural cycle in the ocean that brings sometimes warm and sometimes cold water uh -huh. up the west coast of Greenland. Yeah. And the first year of OMG, there was a shift in this pattern and some cold water made it into the glacier. Uh -huh. uh, and in fact, it stopped its retreat in its tracks and it grew for the first time in 20 years. Um, now, this sounds like great news, right? right. Greenland's growing. Yes. yes. Right. <laughs> uh, but in fact, it's, it's kind of terrible news because what it means is that this glacier is very, very sensitive to what the water is doing. Mm -hmm. um, it's so sensitive that uh, for 20 years it was retreating while the water was relatively warm. Uh, the water changed temperature by about two degrees Celsius, uh, and it grew. That means that the water has a huge impact on this glacier and probably a lot of other really big glaciers around Greenland. And if that's the case, remember we keep coming back to this same idea, over 90% of the heat trapped by greenhouse gases is going in to the, the oceans, yeah. right? Yeah. So in the in the long run, we know that water is going to warm back up uh, and that this glacier, along with all the others around Greenland, are going to feel not just the warming air, but the warming water, and they're going to feel mm -hmm. it in a really big way.
Yeah. Do do we know one of the th- one of the other you know sort of climate concepts that I have built into my head from so much talking about it is that you have the Arctic warming. I think it's nine times now, nine times faster than the. You have like when you look at these temperature anomaly maps, you have like this one region of the Arctic. I feel like it's it's right below Greenland. Um, yeah. that's warming like nine times faster than the rest of the 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 atmosphere on average. Do we know it's, why that is? Well, it's probably actually in the Arctic Ocean itself. So to the north of Greenland, um, there well, there are some there are some natural cycles that you're mm-hmm. seeing in those maps as well, right? And yes. one of them is the cycle that shifted from warm to cold mm-hmm. uh, right at the beginning of our mission. Yeah. And so you're seeing that on top of the global warming signal. And separating that out sometimes is a little tricky. Uh, but the place where there's the most amplification of the actual global warming signal is in the Arctic Ocean. And the reason for that is is very simple, as the the ice is very reflective. It's uh, bright white, and it reflects almost all the sunlight back Mm -hmm. out into space right away. Yeah. Um, Water is very dark, and it absorbs almost all the sunlight right away. So as the ice in the Arctic has started to retreat, the warming of the ocean and the amount of heat that gets sucked up by it uh, is many, many times bigger than elsewhere on the planet because you're losing this reflector and gaining uh, this uh, this material that's, you know, you're gaining this ocean water in the summer, this ocean area in the summer that just sucks up heat like crazy. Uh, and, you know, some of it gets, it has to get spit back out in order to form the sea ice again. Uh, remember the Arctic Ocean north of, of Greenland is actually, uh, the Arctic, the North Pole is an ocean. It's not solid ice, even though mm-hmm. it's mostly covered in ice, especially right. in the winter. Um, that's actually frozen seawater, which which forms when the air gets cold enough to to actually freeze the water right at the surface. And so um, at, if it sucks up a bunch of heat in the summer because there's more water exposed, then that heat has to come back out before the sea ice can form the next year. So there's this declining amount of sea ice in the Arctic. Uh, in fact, in, since the late 1970s, the amount of ice in, in the Arctic in the summer has decreased by a factor of four. Mm-hmm. So it's about twice as small an area and yeah. about half the thickness. So we're, we're really watching the Arctic uh, you know, as like a preview for what the rest of the world's going to do in the next 50 years. Yeah, which is scary because... I think this year alone, there were over 100 wildfires in the Arctic Circle. Yeah. yeah. Jesus. That's insane. It's like, a lot. It's, it's insane lot. to think. I had friends who lived in Alaska in the Fairbanks area, and their skies were just covered in the summertime with smoke. Yeah. For, for You live in, in California, right? Um, right? So I'm sure you've at least seen or been affected, hopefully not affected, but at least seen some of it, um, some of the fires out there. Oh yeah, yeah. Wildfire in in California along this part of the coast is is just a part of the way of life here. And mm-hmm. you know that's always been true to a degree, yeah. but as the temperature increases, um, then the likelihood of wildfire increases. Uh, we've also had really severe drought here for about twenty plus years. So we're you know we're really looking at a at a west coast. Um, that's uh, the southwest coast, especially that's like a tinderbox, mm-hmm. um, and just waiting to go. 
Now, when you – this is a really interesting psychology. I'm always interested in the science or the, the psychology of scientists and science in general. It's really interesting that you find this result, that you initially found this result, that the the glacier had actually grown um, right. over the right. past few years. Was there a part of you that thought, wait a minute, um, do we have this thing wrong? Are we missing something right. here? Is there a piece of the puzzle I don't understand? Uh, but because obviously, or I assume, you didn't know the answer initially to explain the data. You just had the right. data. You had to come up. You had to somehow extrapolate to find the answer. Um, was there a part of you that was like, hmm, maybe this is a hoax? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, of course. You know, I mean, the first time you see a result uh, uh, of any kind, you know, Mm -hmm. the the first thing you do is go is that right you know yeah, <laughs> you yeah. you have a whole bunch of you know and especially as you as you you know as you go along in your career you you stack up these uh these little tests for self consistency and um you know feasibility and does you know does this make sense right and you become a really big skeptic of your own work and yeah. that's part of being a good scientist is mm -hmm. you know the the first skeptic of your own of your results is you, right? Yes. Of course, yeah. at always, right? You 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 want to make sure it's really true before you show it to somebody else. And then the you know the more you you know the more people you show it to, the more scrutiny it receives. And when it's surprising like this, uh, it gets a lot of scrutiny. So so yeah, of course, when we first saw the growing of of the glacier, we were like, what is going on? What's happening? Um, and it was uh, it was a big surprise because glacier uh, Jakobshavn uh, is has been Greenland's biggest fastest glacier for a long time, but up until about 2003 or four, it had a floating ice tongue. So because it was flowing so fast, um, it would actually uh, leave the ground mm -hmm. um, and uh, float on a little layer of water. So you would have a layer of ice and a layer of ocean and then bedrock down beneath right. so uh, uh and and a few glaciers in northern greenland still have this configuration but in 2003 or 4 um that chunk broke off and it was sort of assumed that the the ocean the ocean's importance would go down that the ocean wouldn't be that important anymore because less ice was in contact with the water yeah but but in fact, what we found is that, contrary to that, uh, the ocean was still playing a huge role. So now, and for the last 20 years, the edge of that glacier, like many glaciers in Greenland now, is sort mm -hmm. of a vertical face. Yeah. Um, the ice comes down and it, it breaks off in these uh, icebergs, but it leaves a vertical face behind. And so mm -hmm. you've got uh, a wall of ice with the, the top of it sticking out of the air. Uh, sticking up in the atmosphere. That's what you see when you fly over. And then, you know, in the case of Jakobshavn, you've got 800 meters of it down uh, in contact with the water. And so that uh, interaction between the water and the ice um, is really what OMG is all about. So when we saw this result for the first time, it was incredibly exciting because it meant the experiment had worked. You know, mm -hmm. we had hoped that we would catch a few of these natural fluctuations right. and it would give us a sense of how important the water was so that we could make better projections in the future so that we can predict sea level rise uh, as the water warms. Yeah. So what is the what is the plan going forward with OMG? You, you started in 2016, I think. 
That's right. right. We had our first uh, ocean and ice surveys in 2016. We did a little bit of the ship work where we looked at the sea floor uh, in mm -hmm. 2015, but we really began in earnest in 2016. Uh, we were scheduled to wrap up in 2020, but in part because of this surprising result with the cool water coming in, uh, we've been given one more year. So we're going to collect data in 2021 as well. Uh, and that gives us two more years to sort out um, just the details of how important the water temperature changing is uh, and how widespread this effect is around Greenland. We know it's big on that one glacier, but how about all the others? There's a couple hundred more that we have to look at. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a very interesting avenue of research. It's interesting to me that I was looking at your, your, your education history. And you started out in physics. Right? Yeah. You yeah, started out in right. my shoes. That's and, right. Um, that's you transitioned right. into to oceanography. Yeah. Which... Well, transitioned is one way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> Was it not a transition? Uh, well, I failed out of the physics program at oh, UC no. San Diego, in fact, actually. Yeah. I was. Uh, uh, I was. Uh, I knew that I wanted to do research and I, mm -hmm. I wanted to get a PhD in something. Um, and it, and I really thought it was physics, uh, yeah. <laughs> and then it turned out it wasn't. <laughs> hey man, um, I might be in your shoes again soon, so it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> right, but uh, it was something that um, you know I I realized along the way, uh, and and more in retrospect, I think uh, was that I wasn't really as passionate about what I was studying as as mm -hmm. I as I am now. Um, I, I loved physics. I loved all my physics classes in college and, and I got to graduate school and I was like, wow, this stuff is really cool. But then when it came time to find something to study, I never really found a problem that kind of, you know, ignited my imagination. Yeah. Uh, and that began to show in my coursework and eventually they were like, you know, maybe you should move along. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was the, it was actually the, the best thing they could have, that the professors uh, there could have done for me because I, I wound up at Scripps studying something that really did excite me that I thought mm -hmm. was really important and, and that I connected with on a, on a kind of personal level. And so um, I wound up studying oceanography and, and almost immediately climate because I, yeah. I was really interested in the warming of the oceans. And so that's how I how I eventually wound up at NASA and wound up flying planes around Greenland. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it worked out for you. So it worked it out did. well. It did. But Josh, I appreciate you doing this. I appreciate you being here. Uh, we had a great conversation. If there's, we'll, we'll wrap it up. If there's anything you want to plug, where people can find you. Oh, um, yeah. Please do. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Google Climate Elvis. Uh, check out the video. Yes, um, do that. Yeah. Yes, there is a Facebook page facebook.com slash climate elvis where i post about the omg mission uh, and you can also find me on instagram and twitter at omg nasa yes and we will have all of the links down below for the people who want to find you um but with that being said awesome. thank you for for being here josh and thank you for tuning in people and and, and we're out ladies and gentlemen i hope you enjoyed the episode um, it was fun. It was a f amazing to record and like to try to get into his mind because first off, I love learning about other cultures and it's interesting to learn how the people who lived on the front lines of climate change have had to adapt to the changes we see because a lot of us don't think about those changes in our day to day life. We don't. So it was great to get that, that, you know, point of expertise of anecdotal evidence on that. 
If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review the show. Please subscribe everywhere. Please follow us on the social media. Do whatever. Please, please, please. TheStateOfTheUniverse.com. All the links are there. And thanks for listening, people. Come back next week. We got new episodes coming up. We got new everything. And I love y'all.